Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Secularism. I'm your host, Annie Sefukaya. New Books and Secularism is one of the many channels in the New Books Network, a volunteer-driven project where we interview authors about their new books in different fields. This gives listeners the opportunity to learn about new books and new ideas from the authors themselves, and will hopefully make everyone dash to the bookstore to get a copy of these great books. Today I'm going to talk to Aaron Adair, author of The Star of Bethlehem, A Skeptical View. Aaron has a PhD in physics from The Ohio State University and primarily works in the area of physics education research. He has also studied physics, astronomy, and mathematics at Michigan State University. He has previously published on The Star of Bethlehem in Sky and Telescope magazine and in Zygon, Journal of Science and Religion. Good morning. Welcome to New Books and Secularism. Uh, Today we are talking to Aaron Adair, author of The Star of Bethlehem, A Skeptical View. Good morning, Aaron. Hi, thank you for having me here. Thanks for being here. Start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? All right. Um, Well, I'm a PhD candidate at Ohio State University in physics. Um, Hopefully I'll actually be a full PhD in just a few weeks, just have the last fun bits to do there. How I came to this subject is somewhat serendipitous, and it started pretty much a decade ago um, when I was at my um, undergrad institute of Michigan State that um, I had gotten uh, the opportunity to work as a planetarium show presenter uh, while also going through college classes. So on weekends, I would do our various sky shows and that. And I, in the uh, holiday period there, they have a holiday-themed planetarium show, usually things that are focused around winter festivals, whether it's old Yule celebrations, Hanukkah, and part of that presentation was about apparent scientific explanations for the Star of Bethlehem, which is the story of the uh, amazing star that was supposed to have indicated to wise men from the east to come seeking the king of the Jews, and then it somehow then led them to their destination in Bethlehem. Uh, That particular show tried explaining it with a conjunction of a couple planets, and that's the first time I remember hearing about such a theory. Um, And that was rather interesting to me, especially because at this point I was still a believer, and if anything, I'd call myself a Catholic deist at the time, so this fit my whole ideology perfectly. Um, didn't require any miracles or anything, so that seemed fantastic. Um, Later on, uh, after I'd actually started getting into biblical studies and not being a believer anymore, which made biblical studies even more fun, (laughs) um, I kind of discovered that not only was this the only theory that was presented at the Planetarium show, but there were others at different dates. And I also found out the show at the Planetarium also had to change history to make their theory work. And this apparently has been a conversation that's been going on literally for centuries. And I had to figure out, okay, how that happened, what's legitimate here, and 
So probably about 2006, I started getting a bit serious into looking into these things. Did you go into biblical studies uh, being a believer and come out a non-believer? Um, I would probably say no, because I remember a couple times trying to read the Bible and starting from Genesis, get to the begats, snore, and couldn't get beyond that. Um, and I mean, even though I had a Catholic upbringing and I went to parochial school for a bit, I wasn't very good at the religious studies portion. I was a very bad student on that front. Uh, for the most part, is basically I kind of just fought my way out of religion into atheism. And then later I kind of got interested in biblical studies because of some of the interesting things that just kind of popped in front of me. Uh, it's like, oh, that's interesting. And then this book that, of course, was supposed to be such a guide to thousands or millions of people has this interesting history that has kind of drawn me in since. Mm-hmm. Um, in this book, you try to sort of scientifically explain what the star could have been um, and why it would signify the birth of a king. Um, of course, you come to the conclusion that it can't really be scientifically explained. Um, what are some of the characteristics uh, of the story that made you think uh, this could not really have been a star? Sure. Well, um the main characteristics that seem to show the most um, amazing aspects of it is pretty much described in just one verse of the Gospel of Matthew. And, of course, that's, there's only basically two verses that really describe the star in the whole thing, and everything after that is just derivative. So it really just boils down to one particular verse, and it says that the star led the Magi, or the wise men, as it's sometimes translated, um, south to Bethlehem, and then it stopped and stood over where the child was. And first off, we know that stars, they don't travel southward, which would be the direction the uh, Magi would be traveling, starting from Jerusalem, going to Bethlehem. Uh, stars travel east to west normally. Um, for something to go southward would require something not too normal. Maybe a meteor could, but it's only then a flash and it's gone instantly. Uh, then, of course, something that can actually then stop after traveling for um, a period of time to actually guide people to a location and then hovering over a particular hovel, which is um, what the text more or less clearly says when read in its original language. Those are just things that we know stars don't do. And if they did, of course, um, that would require a star so close to the surface we'd be uh, plasma. So what are... Um what are some of the other hypotheses out there in terms of what this thing could have been? Um, I would say probably the three biggest popular categories out there are the nova or supernova theory, which is um, an exploding star, which would then, to an observer on Earth, look like this brand new and bright light in the sky. Um, Nova coming from the Latin for news, so that's how I got its name, being a new star, and that would have been a fantastic way of uh, signaling something, that something else new is in the sky. Um, another one that's fairly popular is the comet, which then is um, something that we know appears somewhat um, unpredictably, has these usually long, elegant tails. Usually, um, we're supposed to be having a really good one coming up soon called Ison, and we're all crossing our fingers that this is going to be the comet of the century. Oh, okay. Maybe, of course. Uh, there were comets, of course, around the time of uh, Jesus' alleged birth as well. So we 
have some records to actually know that that's not completely fiction or anything. But perhaps the ones that get the most amount of literature attached to them deal with the planets and um, their positions with each other, especially with what are called conjunctions. Um, sometimes they're confused with just close appro- approaches to planets, but in astrology, it conjunctions just basically when two stars have the same line of longitude. And they would be like one right over the other, and they're usually close to each other. Uh, so they'll say like, well, Jupiter's the king planet, and it's in conjunction with another planet. Usually either it's going to be Saturn or Venus, depending on whose theory. And that was supposed to then have great astrological importance for the Jews and for kings and things like that. And those are some of the most popular ones you'll see, though. There are plenty of other small ones, and apparently the more and more I watch the History Channel, the more and more they're telling me it's aliens. (laughs) It it, it seems like um, there's this kind of... um I mean, you talk a little bit about astrology, which I think is interesting, which has now been sort of debunked as a science. But you said that at the time it was kind of uh, astrology and astronomy were kind of together um, in a way. And what does this have to do with um, with the story of the Star of Bethlehem, if, if there's any connection? Sure. Well, in some ways, um, trying to attach the story to astrology has a bit of um, cleverness to it from a scholarly point because you have to then wonder, okay, what could have possibly been up in the sky that, say, um, the actual king of the Jews at the time, Herod the Great, and his counselors didn't notice, but then the Magi from Persia did notice. If it was, say, a supernova, you know, everyone would have noticed that. If it was a comet, everyone would have noticed that. But if it was some sort of esoteric reading of the stars, as astrology does, then that wouldn't necessarily be known by the common person or even kings necessarily. So it has almost, you know, uh, a value to it in explaining why only a select group of people knew. But more importantly is the simple fact that pretty much in the past, uh, astrologers and astronomers were the same people that the reason you did astronomy was ultimately so you could do astrology, that uh, it was just, in some ways, it was almost trying a way of explaining history and peoples and that, and it was this effective grand way of unifying um, the heavens and the earth, uh, the gods and people, that is, uh, the axiom that they would usually go in this fairly short form is, as above, so below, that the metaphors of what they see in the heavens then describe what will happen here on earth. So the idea then, of course, if you can read the stars, then you would understand what they signify. And then, of course, you read the stars and say, oh, they're signifying the birth of a great man or something like that. Or at least that's the hypothesis that people put forward to explain the star of Bethlehem. But were the Magi astrologists, though? Well, it depends on what period of time. If, uh, most people, of course, assume that they were astrologers because... Um, Later on, we definitely know they were. The primary reason that um, Muslims in the Middle Ages and such would get into astronomy and astrology was because of what um, the Magi and other Persians had preserved. Um, In many ways, they basically caused it so science would actually be a part of the Islamic world. But it seems that that didn't happen until maybe 3rd, 4th, 5th century AD. Before then, we actually see from their literature and from other sources that Apparently, they actually didn't have any astrological interests, and most people don't realize that. <laughs> hmm. 
So it doesn't completely help their theory, but they kind of think it does. <laughs> right, yeah, but it's – most Bible scholars don't even realize that apparently the Magi weren't actually astrologers. It's just the common assumption you'll look in a lot of the uh, um, texts – uh, books for the lexicons for Greek to English, and they'll have Magi, um, other translation, astrologer. Um, some mainstream translations have it that way because, if anything, the context makes it sound like they're, they're astrologers. They read the stars and they understood. But now we know, at least at that period, they weren't um, interested in these things. Uh, you talked a little bit about translation. How does the translation of the Bible, which we know has been translated about a billion times, um, how does that make the, the research even more difficult? Fortunately, um, with this particular um, part of the gospel, that when it comes to like the Greek text that we have, it's reasonably well-preserved. We don't have like four or five different versions that are so completely different or missing details beyond what you'd expect from like spelling mistakes that we have to actually worry about like what the original text was. But... When it comes to the translations that, um, for the most part, I mean, the English ones that you'll find are decent, but they may not get to some of the nuances that really emphasize the miraculous nature of it. For example, most translations will say the star went before the wise men or the magi, but the actual word there is actually um, is used there to mean to lead, to actually you know, physically tell them this way, people. Um, or it might also then emphasize even more the stopping action of that, which, if you translate into English, gets a bit verbose, and it doesn't really become that elegant of a translation. Um, but uh, for the most part, the real issues aren't so much from the translators who can read the text just fine. The real problem is usually from many astronomers who are sticking to the English translations, and not even those maybe um, carefully, and then making incorrect assumptions from those, or worse, go to the Greek and then show that they have no idea what they're reading. Something that I've never quite understood with, with the Bible is how, um, I mean, this is something that happened so long ago, how do we even know that it was meant to be a historical account of anything? Like, is there any evidence of, of that? How do we know it wasn't just a story? It's a difficult question. It's one of the ones that um, uh, Bible scholars have been basically beating their heads over for 200 years, I'd say, um, trying to figure out what stories here are you know, fictional that were created by the author, what things are legitimate memories of the historical Jesus and the things he said and did, and it's not been an easy project. And so far, even the methods they've created to try to parse fiction from non have... Um, pretty much fallen apart and you get as many historical Jesus reconstructions as there are people who research it. Right. So right. there's that issue, but um, if we just, you know... And you say that the... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and if we just look at, you know, basically like what people were saying in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, the early Christians there, they were certainly at least taking it as historical as, well, gospel truth. <laughs> okay, yeah. Some people still do. Um how reliable is um, Matthew? You do have a chapter about that in your book. Right. I tried comparing him to what we would expect from normal um, historical works of the time. If he was trying to write an actual history or a biography, um, the histories and biographies of the time aren't usually of the caliber that we would expect of 
uh, a modern researcher, we would probably even tell the best of them that um, through peer review, you need to you know work on a few things. But of the most basic levels of what we'd expect an historian to do is tell us who they are, why they're writing, how they do their research, what sources they use, why they use some sources over others, um, and especially if they have contradictory sources, how do they decide amongst those? Uh, one of the best historians of antiquity we have um, was named Arian, and he wrote a big history of the um, life and events of Alexander the Great. And basically he said um, the primary sources he's using are some of the generals that traveled with Alexander. He has their texts that they wrote afterwards and was going to follow them until pretty much they contradict each other, and then he'd have to argue about which of the two seem legitimate. That's what we expect from like the best historians. And even the worst of the historians of the time, the most um, infamous probably is um, Suetonius, who we know is um, somewhat of basically the National Enquirer of Antiquity in his um, uh, materials. But even he, will, like when he's even talking about characters like Nero, who he despised and who basically reported gossip as history, even he will basically say, well, here are some of the more folklorish things said about him, and here's what we actually know from, say, you know, from more legitimate sources or from inscriptions. And those sorts of things, you know, at least give us some sense of reliability of he's actually trying to do some research. With Matthew, we don't have any of that. We don't know who he is, what sources he uses, why he accepts some sources over others. And this becomes all the more galling when we then compare it to the other canonical version of the birth of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, who is so dramatically different from Matthew. And Luke, of course, claims he's been using witnesses to the tradition of Jesus. Um, so why doesn't he have a story with the star and wise men, the escape from Bethlehem to Egypt? It's so completely different. Most scholars think they must have worked independently and didn't have any decent sources to work with at all. So for, for those of us who haven't read the Bible, uh, Luke's story does not have a star in it at all, and um, his account of the birth is entirely different from Matthew's. Right, and his story yeah. that, um, first off, it, his story seems to take place a decade later than when Matthew does, at least a decade later. Mm -hmm. So there's already that contradiction, and there's almost as much literature trying to reconcile that problem as there is explaining the star of Bethlehem. But um, uh, when it comes to the details talked about, there isn't a star or anything like that. What we have instead is um, there's first like an annunciation of the angel Gabriel to Mary, telling how she's going to um, be mystically impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Um, details that are missing from Matthew. Though one would think that was an interesting story to tell. Um, we don't have any stars, but we do have an angel making um, grand announcements to shepherds to go and um, search out um, the newly born Jesus in Bethlehem. So there are some similarities that there does seem to be um, a miraculous birth that seems to take place in Bethlehem, that there were visitors. But beyond that, there are so many differences. There isn't, uh, in Luke, an attempt to actually kill the infant Jesus by King Herod, as there is in the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, this is also in part because this is taking place like a decade after Herod the Great had died. Yeah, it's hard to try to kill someone after you've died yourself. Yeah, it, it takes a very special person to do that. Yeah, yeah. Although that's possible. I mean, if you can have a virgin birth, 
then I think, you know, you can probably, you know, uh, do stuff after you're gone. Um, you said that until the 1800s, actually, people didn't really try to explain the star scientifically. It was just kind of assumed that it was this miraculous thing. Uh, why did that change? Why did suddenly people become interested in trying to find a scientific explanation for the star? In many ways, it's a, kind of an outgrowth of what was happening from the physics of Isaac Newton and then um, the apparent um, conditions that that put on the universe. Even though Newton himself believed in miracles and he wanted basically God to occasionally come in and tinker with the solar system to make sure it wasn't running completely like a, what a deist would. But um, in effect, when the universe was explained so well in detail, even at that time, that it didn't seem to require um, divine providence to keep things going, this basically led to people becoming either more and more deistic or, in effect, atheistic. So you had um, people like Spinoza, who basically made God synonymous with the universe and the laws of the universe, and nothing miraculous ever happens. Or you had philosophers like David Hume, um, who argued that basically, from what we know, that miracle claims can almost never be justified because um, anytime we look into them, we can pretty much justify it with the person being um, loony, a liar, misinformed, that we just see that as education goes up, as literacy, as knowledge goes up, miracles seem to disappear. And of course, we know so many are frauds. So then people were, were then applying this sort of thought process that, okay, the universe seems to run according to clockwork, apparently. But we have this, you know, pretty interesting book that we read that has all sorts of things that don't exactly work according to plan. And then we had a few people then finally arguing that, well, that's because the stories are fiction. This started in late 1700s, around maybe 1770, um, with the posthumous publishing of some of the first critical works on the Bible by the name of a person named Herman Samuel Ramirez, who published after he died because, well, he didn't want to live with being the first person to throw this out. <laughs> um, but after those publications that um, people realized, oh boy, we've got a problem here. And he was attacking um, Old Testament, New Testament, the Exodus story, the resurrection, everything. And part of the problem was the fact is that the gospel has a lot of miracle stories and miracles seem to be impossible. So mm -hmm. Then this, of course, had the interesting solution by at least some Protestant theologians come turn of the 19th century that, okay, the Bible's true, we know it in our hearts, but miracles, that doesn't really work. It's not what we expect from the all-perfect God. So what really must be going on here is that these apparent miracles were just kind of misunderstood or lost in the language or something to that effect. And in each of these cases, there's some sort of... Um, the most famous proponent of that was a person by the name of Heinrich Paulus, who in his book explained every single miracle um, attached to Jesus as something completely natural. The most famous example that's mentioned is how he explained how Jesus walked on water, that it was a dark and stormy night, and it was foggy, and the disciples were out at sea, and they got themselves lost, and they didn't realize that they basically hit the beach shores. And so then Jesus comes walking up on the beach shore as well, and they still think they're out at sea. They see their master walking, and they think, oh, he's doing the impossible. 
and now imagine applying that same sort of logic to every single story in the gospel, and then you have what was going on in the early 19th century called the rationalist movement. That's, that's really interesting, but then if that's the case, then where's the need for, for God in the first place if they're, they're pretty much admitting there are no miracles? Is it like God created the universe and then these are the rules and, you know, we play by them, but God is still sort of, um, you know, controlling all the moves? Um, I guess they could, you know, they would say, of course, that, yeah, indeed, God created the universe, so he still has that sort of ultimate authority. That um, it's, and of course, I mean, for all of these things to like naturally play out, especially with the Star of Bethlehem, if the planets were aligned in just the right way at his birth, that would almost seem to require, you know, a massive cosmic intelligence to make sure everything would work out that way to, as clockwork, get that exact result. Um, But ultimately, of course, the thing that saves them is the simple fact that if the Gospels are still historically reliable, then they still can have theological weight, that they still have that authority, which is ultimately what they were going for, to preserve the authority of the Bible. Mm. What about the theory that it was an alien UFO, which I think is my favorite of the theory? (laughs) Yeah, um, it's been proposed by several people um, independently, as far as I can tell, back in the 60s, um, including by one person who has a PhD in theological studies. So if, even though, of course, it's rather fringy, it's also promoted by people who um, you know, have a theological and scientific background. And to be fair, in many ways, it can fit the description. A UFO, a flying saucer, can guide people in any direction you want. It can hover lower in the atmosphere over any location you'd like. So it can fit those descriptions. Um, if need be, it could have popped over in Persia, told the wise men, hey, something awesome is going to happen over here, so um, get on your camels and book it, and I'll you know, lead you the rest of the way. That's at least imaginable. It's much more difficult to imagine that with um, comets, for example. Mm-hmm. Of course, it has the issues that it's described as a star, and if it was a ship, I mean, there is the Greek word for ship. They could have used that. So even when it's hovering over a particular house, how they can still think it's a star is a little bit difficult to explain. But I guess holograms or – once you give them pretty much infinite technology, I'm sure the aliens could do what they want. Mm. Yeah. Well, I suppose everything is possible, you know, once you're in that realm. Right, yeah. Of course, then again, um, I actually have had a little bit of discussion with um, one of the people who proposed this who's still alive um, – Reverend um, Barry Downing, and I was, of course, a bit curious about how he then, you know, deals with other religions if they wanted to make the same claim. For example, in Islamic tradition, uh, Jesus wasn't actually killed on the cross, let alone resurrected. He escaped the cross, and people only thought they had killed Jesus. Well, to me, of course, this is so easy to explain with aliens because they use a 3D hologram on the cross. So, of course, I wonder, well, how does a Christian then deal with that sort of claim being used by, um, say, Muslim apologists if they so wanted to become ancient alien theorists, though apparently he just wasn't considering that so much that I guess it was just enough that it could, you know, preserve the stories of the Bible because now all the miracles there can be explained by aliens. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, yeah, Mel Gibson's movie would have been quite different if he had used that story instead. 
um, probably a lot less gruesome. So what, uh, when you research this and when you talk to people about it, uh, what's the reaction to your book in general or to your, you know, research? When I've talked to um, professional Bible scholars about this, um, some uh, one that I know at the university that I've chatted with, others through the Internet, this is you know completely mainstream. It's been mainstream basically for 150 years that the story is not historical, that it's based on emulation of Old Testament prophecies and that um, as for the um, average person, it still hasn't had enough impact yet that I've seen that I can really say, gauge how it's going to go over. Um, but hopefully as the word gets out more and more that there are scientists um, such as myself and others who basically say, no, this isn't, this isn't right, um, this isn't even close to right, and as I try documenting, proving it, um, I'll hope to see more and more of what that response is. Some of them might dig their feet in, some might say, well, if it's a miracle and you can't disprove a miracle or something to that effect, but I can only speculate at this point what the reaction will be. Right, right. Um, and is your book out already? If people want to purchase it, um, where can they, they find a copy? Um, there are, there's both the Kindle version and the paperback of, um, available from Amazon. Um, I've also seen it for digital PDF downloads as well elsewhere and at Barnes & Noble again in paperback. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on today and talking to us about your book. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to an interview with Aaron Adair, author of The Star of Bethlehem, A Skeptical View. This is your host, Annie Sebukaya. Thank you for listening to new books in secularism.